0: Welcome to Mental Health Mosaics, an exploration of mental health from out north, which is located on the unceded traditional lands of the Dana'ina people in Anchorage, Alaska. I'm Ann Hillman. On this episode, we're talking about racism and mental health, both racism within mental health systems and how racism in general affects mental health. We're talking about really painful stuff, like police brutality and misdiagnosis, so please care for yourself. Later in the episode, we'll also get into ways to shift the mental health system to start to solve the problems when we talk with psychiatrist and professor Dr. Ruth Shim. I'm starting this episode with another poem from M.C. Mahogany Magnetic, an African-American trans woman poet and activist. Her poem speaks directly to police brutality, white supremacy, and pain. Then she puts all of these issues into context by talking about our own lived experiences with mental health issues. It really illustrates how it's all tied together. So without further ado, here's Mahogany.
1: The title of this poem is No Justice, George, No Peace, Brianna. Uh, Clearly written in 2020. Where are you now that George Floyd has died? Are you down and ready to ride? Take no more with your last breath. Let the system burn till there's nothing left. But the hardcore reality that black lives matter, water cooler, convo filled with chatter, calling into question your humanity. Like a grudge, Corona got a grip on sanity, got folks sick, tired, hot, bothered and sad. Everybody and their mama all pissed off and mad about a black woman shot and killed in her own house. Don't act like you don't know Breonna Taylor's who I'm talking about. So yeah, don't worry about that bucket of water. Remember the centuries of genocide and slaughter. Superiority complex can be unlearned. And so what? The roof is on fire. Let it burn. Give them, give them no choice but to listen and respect our voice. Get your hands out my pocket. No means no. We said stop it. Murderers getting paid on administrative leave. Promoted for using their knees to choke hope out of the people. All lives matter? Come on, man. That ish ain't equal. Tell me what's making a difference supposed to look like. Matt struck fireworks in broad daylight. No longer satiated. Refused to be placated until the killing of our people ceased. If there's no justice for George and Brianna, there will be no peace.
0: When we were talking about um, this episode of Mosaics and we're talking about, you know, mental health and oppression. Like what made you think this poem? What made you this poem made you made you associate it with mental health?
1: Right. Well, you know, I think this, this episode is not just oppression, but we're talking about white supremacy. Heck yeah. We're talking about um, structural, institutionalized, systemic, internalized racism. There is um, there is oppression. There is class issues. this You know, police brutality. Some serious things going on, right? But we must talk about these things. And they, like, greatly affect every aspect of our lives. Racism and white supremacy are so invasive in not just our lives, access to health uh, healthcare, access to wealth, access to you know, to housing and, and you know, treated fair fairly in the courts, but it, it impedes on our on our own lives, you know? When you go home and like, you know, you're trying to mind your business, you know, just just chilling. But you gotta, you know, watch, you know, catch the news clip or whatever, you know. Now they got like, what, eleven white jurors and one one black juror on uh, uh, a, a broad, uh, Amal Arbery's, yeah, Amal Arbery's case, like, yo, what, what, what's that about, right? And I, I want to say, you know, attitudes have changed, maybe it won't be so bad, but no, clearly there's a problem there. It's like, what, did, what does that say? To that message? So, it's just like hard, you know, you know, you can't like just come home and take racism off of you. Right? You just you just can't ho- go home and get rid of ri- white supremacy because there's no food in in the refrigerator, you know? Why you don't have any food? Is it it's not always from a lack of trying. It's the fact that well, you can't get a job because they're not hiring negroes today. Period. And that's that. And and so and it's like one hurdle after another, one challenge after another. It impedes on our on our personal relationships and the way we Interact with one another, especially when we think about and talk about internalized racism, right? So, in, in, in this poem, I talked about superiority complex can't be unlearned. Well, just as, you know, European white Americans have been able to adopt this attitude that this superiority over people, you know, um, as people of color have often, like, you know, internalized racism where we like inferior. Another word that I don't use, I don't use, but I can't say it is minority, right? There's nothing minor about me, period. End of discussion on that. But but to say that it, that I'm minor, I'm internalizing. It's like I'm less than, and, and I'm not. So, and and that plays into it, right? Internalized racism can you know make me like straighten my hair, perm my hair when my hair is like naturally curly right uh it's kinky and stuff internalized racism is like you see it in, in like many uh on the continent of africa you you go to african stores i haven't seen here here in anchorage yes i have i've seen them every place i've gone and gone to african stores to get traditional african food there's always skin lightener there on the shelf somewhere you know Right, so you know, to lighten our skin, to, to to be more passable, and and you know, things. Or one of the things that I remember, like learning too, is that how you interact with the police. Don't look them in the eye, you know. You know what I'm saying because you don't want to be confrontational, you know. And at one point in time in American history, you know, it's like if you know I'm walking down the street and there's some good, you know, old white folks walking. I had to like you know step off to the side, let them have the sidewalk. Those that, were the days we was living in, you know, when we talk about segregation.
0: And you're not that old. I'm not that old.
1: I'll be 46 in January. Ooh, but I am I am that old, right? I am that old because I have my grandmother, I have my parents' memories and their experiences. I have my grandmother's memories that I know of, right? Maybe things will start getting out of reach when I no longer have people like that to connect to. But then I still have the history books. And I love history. So for me to like, you know, read about the past, I'm like experiencing this thing now.
0: Well, not just, t- I mean, you tied directly to what Mita was talking about in the last episode, where she was talking about how history reverberates mm-hmm. through and you're not disconnected. And you're, even if it's not in your living memory, it's still connected to you and, and the people around you.
1: Totally, totally, totally. Like, you know, when, uh, what was it, 2013 when I was like, you know, banned, discriminated against for using ladies room at, at Humpy's downtown and um when i finally like like left there and i was on my way home i was like crying i was like how can this be i've never been told where i cannot go into i was never i had never been discriminated against i was like why is that you know since because like my ancestors my african african american ancestors like you know from 19 19- 54, you know, Plessy versus Board of Education, you know, the 60s and 70s Civil Rights Amendment, you know, laid it all out on, on the line just so I'm not, like, you know, segregated again, you know, discriminated against. I can be in public situations. You and I can use the same, like, ladies' room. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, I can do those places. I had never, like, interact, had to experience that type of discrimination in my lifetime. Now, maybe, you know what I'm saying, job application or something like this that wasn't like overtly. But then we now we're talking about this covert racism, you know, all those things factor into it. Yeah. And, you know, some days some days I'd be like, wow, when I see the things that's happening in our world. Right. And I was like, man, this is like this. This post George Floyd murder life is is actually pretty good. You know, it's, it's sad that he had to, you know, he had to die. Breonna Taylor had to die. But there are things that are changing in our society and our culture and our attitudes and our mindsets and our hearts for the better.
0: And you feel like that's holding true a year and a half later.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I still think so. It's not just a trend, you know, trend, you know, because like last summer, you know, summer 2020 was nice. Nice. I didn't have to open any doors, you know what I'm saying? White folks would just like step out of the way like, you know, hold the door open for me, you know, just to go into the, you know, the, to to the, to the grocery store. I definitely see a lot more in the in the non world. In the arts world, there's, you know, more push to, you know, to to get black artists out there. It's more push for, you know, recognizing uh indigenous people, and POCs. We'll, we'll we'll see, but I think the whole nation burning, the whole world burning, you know, summer 2020, like it really, really, you know, changed some, some things for us. So, but yeah, it's, 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 all more, more, it's always more work to go. You know, one more thing I, I'll say about, about racism that, that's important too is that it's a weapon that any, anyone can pick up and use at any given time. White folks do not have the monopoly on racism. Do not own a monopoly on racism. And I'm like, golly, I get into it with some of my own black folks, my friends and everything. And they be like telling some old racist uh, jokes about Chinese people or Japanese people. It's like, no, that's not cool. Period. Under no circumstances. We just, because we've internalized racism, we experience oppression, don't mean we got to turn around and treat other people like crap. Period. Don't do it. You know? So and those are conversations that need to be had, too, because we none of us are... are, are absolved from using this you know what i'm saying me personally i've given it to characters in my stories you know it's like i feel like saying some racist stuff so i'm gonna put it on the character like get it on out there for me you know but those attitudes are real and and they genuine and within our own cultures and language we all have these very derogatory uh, terms and names for other people other cultures that they may not ever hear or know because this is our own like language systems only in you know internal codes that we're using you know da, da 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 to speak ill about these other folks, but yeah, white folks don't have a monopoly on racism, people need to get, get, learn to deal with that um, but yeah, so you know in in this piece of just like you know asking this question, where are we where are we now you know george ford has died is murdered, like. You know what are we gonna do next? You know, are you ready to to like go and affect change in community? You know, help other people, uh, make our culture better. You know, community better by having the hard conversations on race in America, the hard conversations on co- uh, colonization. You know, don't don't really want to talk about that. But yeah, racism is, is, is white supremacy. Is it's a beast?
0: Have you experienced? That like in your treatment for for mental illness, have you experienced like within the mental health system like, people being white supremacists or being racist, or just pushing ideas on you? That
1: yeah, I mean, definitely received some stuff from from uh, patients that I was hospitalized with. You know, that's one thing that we, we you know we talk about mental. Uh, health and being hospitalized oftentimes we talk about what it's like you know with the doctors and nurses and have been treated certain kinds of ways with them based on um and, I, and that's it's so and it's difficult for me to say um why people are discriminating against me sometimes i don't know if it is because of race or because of gender sometimes it's both and but i i know it when i felt it, and i've had experienced quite a bit of bit of that um and I've been in a lot of different hospitals, you know, Staten Island, um, Atlanta, Georgia, here in Anchorage. I've been to everyone but API, you know, and so, uh, and I've been treated like you know, sometimes in very uh, disrespectful ways, neglectful ways, um, dis dis dismiss, right? And like I I, re- I remember was, there was a time where I had a, um. A manic episode. I was was suicidal after being, um, you know, kind of like, you know, just, just, I don't know what to say. I I can't, I want to say it was an attack was too strong, but this white man basically like he asked me, was I a woman or a man? And I says like, I have a dress on. I have these nails and I have this lipstick on. I had black lipstick on that day. And he grabs my head and he twists my head. said, so I can't tell your lipstick apart from your face because you're black, you know. And then as I was moving away, he you know moves to like lift up my my uh, my dress. And so when I called uh, Alaska State Troopers about it, this was like 2017 around Labor Day, and um, you know, and and you know, and, and when I called the trooper, it was like, yeah, I'm, I'm a look, you know, go 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 check this out. Now, my license has been changed, you know, to reflect that I'm female. My name is, like, legally changed and everything. So the officer was like, yeah, or, no, you know, yes, ma'am, blah, 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 blah. So he goes and talks to the other people to get their side of the story. So, But when he comes back and he's talking to me, he's, like, misgendering me. Why? You know, he's talking to me in a different tone. He says, well, this is, a, this is a non-reportable crime. I'm like, what's a non-reportable crime, you know? basically you 're telling me what happened to me a black woman is not worth you filling in in some funky boxes. What happened to me wasn 't worth that so when i am and i 'm I'm, I'm hospitalized you know and i 'm telling you know the uh the doctors and the nurses and the counselors my experience of how like you know this manic attack this 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 psychotic uh Episode. This suicidal ideation stems from you know how I was treated. You know to racially discriminated against at humpies, racially you know uh, attacked by 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 this man here. That that plays into why I'm there in the hospital. Can they empathize with that? No. Like well, we don't know what to tell you, but you should definitely try this medication. See how you feel tomorrow. You know that's just what it leads to. Because you know. Many of these doctors and physicians are not people of color, so they don't know what these experiences are like, you know, it's like how that actually factors into uh, depression and, and, uh, and, and, and mania and, and, and panic and anxiety attacks, you know. So, yeah, that's like, you know, a major part. But like I, was, I started to say, too, one of the things they're talk about is when you are hospitalized, you also are in there with other people who are, you know, going through some things. However, they may have mental health issues, but they're still bringing themselves, they're still bringing their racist ideas, they're still bringing their transphobic ideas to to the group, their homophobic ideas to the group, to the meetings, to the setting. And it's been taught, you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, you know, the the counselors that do the work are like setting these ground rules and stuff, but every now and then someone breaks these rules and says something very hurtful to another person, you know? Why are, you t- why are you trying to get care and treatment? And it's like, mm-hmm. I just want to get well. I don't want to have to, like, deal with no racism and transphobic stuff right now, you know? Like, can I just be, you know, a patient? <laughs> but, yeah, that, that's my poem in, in, in the essence, though, to, to, to speak to that and to talk about... Um, you know, specifically, this poem speaks to you know the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. So, we're talking about police brutality here, and we're talking about systems, and we're talking about like over what, four or five hundred years of this captivity. Like, it's living memory. You know, what I'm saying my great grand my grandmother you know, it, grandparents can can tell me what it was like. You know, growing up as children in, in, in sharecropping. That's you know it's not that far away.
0: That was Mahogany Magnetic, talking about poetry, racism, and mental health. Mahogany's experiences are unfortunately not unique. Discrimination has a direct effect on mental health, and there's discrimination and racism within the mental health system. To put Mahogany's experiences into a larger context, I reached out to Dr. Ruth Shim, a Black psychiatrist who's working to fix these problems.
2: My name is Ruth Shim, and I am a psychiatrist. Um, my official titles right now are that I am the Luke and Grace Kim Professor in Cultural Psychiatry at the University of California, Davis um, in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, I'm also the Associate Dean of Diverse and Inclusive Education in the School of Medicine at the University of California, Davis. Um, and so, those are the that, that's my day job. That's what I've been working on for the last couple of years. And um, yeah, and I've been a psychiatrist for about. Um, going on nearing, nearing 20 years now, um, the, the work that I do is, has been really rewarding, and, and I've managed to see a lot of kind of the field of mental health, see a lot of um, what's wrong with, with mental health, particularly in this country, and that has led to me um, trying to come up with solutions for how to fix some of the problems in the system as it relates to mental health.
0: I really appreciate that about your work, that you're not just like, this is wrong and this is wrong, but this is where we go from here.
2: Yeah. How did you end up in psychiatry to begin with? You know, it's interesting. I, for whatever reason, since I was really young, have always been interested in mental health and psychiatry. And I have no idea why, but I always tell people I, when I was like 10 or 11, I would read Time Magazine articles about people with mental illnesses. And and I was always like, I I remember there was a fascinating article in Time about um, Clozapine, one of the uh, drugs to, that treats schizophrenia. And I read it cover to cover and I found it so interesting. And I was really young. And so I don't know where that interest comes from, but has, it has always been there for some reason. Um, you know, as I have gotten older, um, clearly I've encountered lots of family members and friends that have struggled with mental health problems and substance use uh, disorders. And so that kind of increased my interest. Um, especially, um, the fact that, uh, how those illnesses in my family and friends, how they were kind of not discussed all the time, how, how people kind of avoided the topic. Uh, and so that really led me to, to kind of strongly want to do something in the mental health world. What do you think it was about being, like doing psychiatry that really just resonated with you? Uh, I think that, um, it's, it's just to turn that question a little bit, you know, I, I think that people have a really strong perception of what a psychiatrist is. There's like a, uh, an image of a psychiatrist and often it is like an older white man on a couch, um, you know, talking to a patient in, in his office. Um, and, and that is kind of the image of what a psychiatrist is. And, and I, um, you know, I, I, just felt like there was more. Um, there, there's more for what psychiatry should be, and and so I was kind of drawn to the idea that that I I wanted to change the perception of of psychiatry, and I wanted to change um, how people view that field, uh, and and really because I think I was seeing so much. Um, mental health problems are everywhere. You know, like everyone is dealing with mental health problems. Everyone is dealing with substance use disorders. This is like pervasive, and and I didn't feel I felt like the 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 images of what a psychiatrist was were so removed from the day to day reality of what regular people are dealing with, and and I really wanted to kind of think about how can we make this more accessible for people? So that's one of the reasons I went into psychiatry, because I wanted people to kind of look at me and say, oh, this is somebody that I could um, go and see and talk to about my mental health problems. And and maybe it's not like super expensive, and maybe it's not so hard to access um, services. And and maybe it's more about like trying to solve regular everyday problems that people have as, as it relates to mental health.
0: I like your vision of what psychiatry could be.
2: Yeah, we're not there yet. We're not <laughs> there yet. But but I but I but I'm I'm really encouraged because there's a lot of young people coming into the field that feel mm-hmm. just like me, and a lot of people that um, have have looked at the problems that we see in our society, the the ways that so many people are having. Um, Uh, mental health issues, uh, and that they're not being addressed, and and how it's an equity issue, in particular, how certain populations have less access to mental health services and substance use uh, services, and how um, just the very uh, nature of being oppressed and marginalized in society leads to Um, mental health problems, um, just by navigating the world when you're being discriminated against or when racism occurs. And there are more and more people going into the field of psychiatry now that understand those things really clearly when that was never something that was highlighted um, in traditional psychiatry training. So I'm really excited and hopeful for the future, because I do think the field and the face of psychiatry is changing.
0: That's really exciting to hear because I, I mean, I fully admit that I come in with the same biases of thinking, you know, you picture the New Yorker cartoon and exactly, yeah, I don't view that as helpful. Whereas like, I talk to all these peer support specialists who have lived it, you know, and I'm like, oh yeah, you're the one I want to talk to.
2: Like. Exactly. And, and that's the thing, you know, the, the other um, perception, that old perception of psychiatry is pretty elitist. Um, It's this idea that only certain people have expertise and everybody else should not be involved in the care or management of people with mental health uh, issues. And so there is no space in that old model for peer specialists. There's no space for psychologists. There's no space for social workers. And a, a large number of psychiatrists are still kind of like fighting, you know, fighting um, other fields around prescribing rights Um, as if this is like the most critical issue that we have in the field of mental health. It's, you know, people do not access, are not able to access mental health services. And so if there are models that are trying to increase Access, I I don't understand why we spend so much time arguing and kind of excluding people from providing services and providing support, which is what many psychiatrists uh, do, at least many psychiatrists of of old do. And and I do, I, I again want to point out that I do think that coming into the field now and moving us in a new direction, there's a much more inclusive model for how psychiatry should be provided. There's much more thought that it should be done in teams, not this individual provider sitting on his couch waiting for people to come in the office, but that teams including peer specialists and psychologists and social workers um, and an all number of people work together to provide uh, more population level care to people with, with mental health problems.
0: That's, it's exciting to hear that you see that evolution happening.
2: Um, so let's take a
0: step back and talk about where we were before we could talk about where we're going. Um, I was I was interested in talking to you because you are so open about talking about the inequities in mental health care um, and how we got there. And I was wondering if if you could talk about that, please. <laughs>
2: Yeah. So the reason that I'm so interested in inequities is because the same as we talked about before, like the training that I got, and I got a great psychiatry training, and I had a great tri- psychiatry training experience, but that training involved, um, you know, providing the evidence-based treatments that we learn about to different populations. And and I trained at um, Emory University, and, and one of the um, interesting things about Emory in Atlanta is that the training sites there's two separate training sites one site is at Emory University Hospital which is located distinctly in the suburbs of Atlanta in the richest part of Atlanta Um, and then the other training site is Grady Memorial Hospital which is the poorest part located in in the city um, in downtown Atlanta in the poorest part of the city and so you um had these two sites and residents and trainees would rotate at both of these sites. And um, what I started noticing kind of very early on in my training is that I'm the same provider um, and yet, and I'm doing the same thing. So I'm providing the exact same treatments And I'm talking to people exactly the same way and I'm prescribing the exact same um, recommendations and we're doing all of the same things around caring for these patients. But the outcomes for the people at Emory University Hospital were completely different from the outcomes of people at Grady Memorial Hospital. And the difference was people for instance with depression uh, when we uh, w- when I would see them at Emory University Hospital I would treat them and we would prescribe medications and we would do therapy and they would get better and then I would rotate at Grady Memorial Hospital and do the exact same thing and they would not get better and and I couldn't I, I couldn't fundamentally understand I, or I wanted to understand what is happening here again I'm I'm no different um and the environments are different, but like, is this, as, as many people have started, have, have posited, is there something about the population? Is there something intrinsic about the people at Grady Memorial Hospital versus the people at Emory University Hospital? I couldn't figure it out. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I remember thinking is the old models of, of education have really highlighted that those differences are the result of. Um, biological or genetic differences between races and ethnicities, or these differences are the result of cultural differences between uh, racial and ethnic groups. And, And none of that really made sense to me. And so that really started me on a journey where I started to understand that it's it has very little to do with any of those things, and has everything to do with the environment, um, with what we call the social determinants of health, um, those factors where we live, learn, work, and play that impact our health, that these are the reasons why you see these huge differences. And just the very um, act of living in a neighborhood that is well funded and well resourced versus living in a neighborhood that is underfunded and under-resourced that those things can lead more significantly to differences in mental health outcomes um and those are the and that's where we have to focus our interventions so that seems
0: completely logical to me like it it does yes so why was that ever in question like why was that not ever just
2: I, so I take, I take it, it's it's a great question. And um, I think it bec- it's because um, the people that had spent time in the field um, did not have the experience of what it's like to be in a neighborhood, to grow up in a neighborhood that is under-resourced and underfunded. Um, or they didn't have the experience of um, encountering um and, and interacting with people outside of that clinical environment, interacting with people that are from those under-resourced um, and underfunded neighborhoods. And then, you know, there is this, this big um, elephant in the room, which is structural racism. Mm-hmm. And it is so pervasive, this idea that our institutions have been built and created and, and have been um, set up to advantage certain Populations and certain racial and ethnic groups, and disadvantage others, and so that frame, um, medicine and psychiatry has operated in that frame since the beginning of time, um, mm-hmm. and so we we have passed those values on. Um, the idea that we look at a um, an illness or we look at a condition, and we say um, that 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 group has that condition because that group makes different choices, makes worse choices about their health, or that group has that condition because that group um, has a higher genetic predisposition to have this particular diagnosis or this particular problem, or, you know, even things like uh, the the belief that certain populations are more prone to use certain drugs um, mm-hmm. uh, when, when that's not, that's not been, proven in any sort of way so we've had all of these ideas and and with that structurally racist frame that we all marinate in in society it's very easy to kind of err on the side of thinking that these differences have nothing to do with the social determinants and have everything to do with people's personal choices and individual decisions that they make
0: i feel like that that's, that's- common, though less common than it used to be, story that's often told in Alaska, especially about Alaska Native people. And, you know, indigenous people are more prone to being alcoholics when it's just.
2: That (laughs) is one of, exactly. Indigenous um, people and alcoholism is probably one of the most pervasive examples of mental health inequities um, in which many studies have been done looking at genetic predisposition um, to try and find the gene that exists among indigenous populations or the gene that exists in Alaska native populations that predicts higher rates of alcoholism with no understanding or consideration for the historical trauma that has been visited upon indigenous populations since the founding of this country. And the idea that that historical trauma Um, may in fact lead to uh, through historical um, uh, epigenetics may lead to gene changes, but really it is an environmental and a a structural impact that leads to um, a a coping or a self-medication through alcohol that is really driving this. And yet people wanna say that this is some sort of biological or genetic um, influence or that again, Al- Alaska Native populations or Indigenous populations are somehow just they like alcohol better, or they or they make bad choices about about, about substances, so they they choose to use alcohol more um, than other populations, and none of that is really accurate, but it has been very pervasive in in our society. Oh, and
0: I. I have no medical doctors in my family who have told me these things when I first moved to Alaska. And I was like, Oh, they must know. I was like, okay. And then you get up here and you start learning the true history. And it's like, Oh, like everything, everything I've been taught is wrong. Are there, that's the most pervasive damaging lie. Are there other pervasive um, assumptions made about black populations or made about other um other cultural groups that pervade psychiatry that you're working to abolish.
2: Absolutely, and I think one of the the clearest examples is is thinking about schizophrenia and um, the the ways that we think about schizophrenia as it relates to black people. Um, And so Jonathan, the author and psychiatrist, Jonathan Metzl wrote an incredible book on this called The Protest Psychosis, how schizophrenia became a black disease. And he really highlights how um, in, in around the 1960s, as we started to see the rise of the civil rights movement, the very definition of schizophrenia was kind of altered from this disease that mostly affected white women who were um, not operating in their um, uh, appropriate gender roles, so they weren't taking care of their households, appropriately and they weren't cleaning and cooking um, as much as they should have been. And they would find themselves diagnosed with schizophrenia prior to the 1960s. And then with the rise of the civil rights movement, um, you saw a shift and a, and a definition of a, of a type of psychosis called the protest psychosis, where um, schizophrenia was kind of reformed by psychiatry into this condition that was um, that people were considered to be aggressive and hostile and violent and paranoid, and and that um, really took off in the '60s and was really associated very particularly with black um, black people and particularly black men. Um, and so the very act of championing civil rights or the very act of trying to fight against uh, oppression was mislabeled um, in the minds of, of many white psychiatrists, was mislabeled as a psychotic illness. Um, and and, and it, it's really complicated because... It's not even that it wasn't that there were uh, there weren't some there wasn't psychosis happening. So in some of those populations, there was uh, psychosis happening because stress induces psychosis. And so um, those men and women that were fighting for civil rights were under higher levels and higher rates of stress. And so they were, in fact, maybe some of them were having psychotic symptoms at times, but not because of the context by which, it was defined, and not because of the act itself of 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 protesting and 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 fighting for civil rights. So, what what we saw in in that time was really an erasure of context, a lack of understanding of how um, the histor the socio historical const- context by which somebody operates in um, dictates their behavior and how behavior is natural and normal behavior could be pathologized to to be seen as something, especially if you come from a place where you don't understand that context, that behavior could be pathologized and 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 attributed again the hostility, the aggression. And and so that happened in the 60s, and again, documented really well in the the book, The Protest Psychosis, but that happened in the 60s. But what we have here in modern times, which has been really well studied um, by many researchers, including including Steve Strakowski, is that we see inequities in all sorts of outcomes as it relates to... um, people of color and black people and schizophrenia. So black people are more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia than with a mood disorder, like bipolar disorder or depression compared to white people. And, um, they're, they're, they're misdiagnosed. So they may have bipolar disorder and they're misdiagnosed as schizophrenia.
0: Can you help me understand, um, I guess, understand the differences between these two diagnoses and kind of, um, yeah, understand the differences in why it matters if you're given one versus the other.
2: Like what? Well, yeah. so it matters a lot because of treatment options. Um, so when you have a mood condition, the treatment is a mood disorder. The treatment is often very different from a primary psychotic disorder. And so um, if you don't, if you're misdiagnosing the condition, you're often then providing the wrong treatment. Um, and so if somebody is not getting the most effective treatment for their condition, then they're not going to improve. And so, so what you see is in this particular population, a misdiagnosis followed by then um, not the right uh, management of symptoms. So a lack of improvement. And then um, you see these populations having, again, worse outcomes. So so if you have misdiagnosed Black people um, at, a, at higher rates, then those people do not recover completely from their illnesses. And then we look at like rates of, of, of um, treatment responsiveness and we say this particular population does not respond as well to this particular medicine or this particular therapy, when really what it came down to was that the diagnosis was wrong in the first place. Um, But even beyond making a mistake in the diagnosis, um, we also see things like, again, associated with this, this conceptualization of aggression, we see things like Black people are more likely to be put in seclusion and restraints Um, When they go to the hospital for emergency psychiatric care, they're more likely. So they're more likely to be seen as hostile and aggressive. They're more likely to be given um, antipsychotic medications against their will to manage their behavior Um, And they're more likely to be given higher doses of those antipsychotic medications. So so the management, uh, in addition to the misdiagnosis, the management in crisis situations is is more harmful. Um, And like a a very clear example I can give you is from my personal um, clinical experience. I've had, um, there there are many different medications that you can use to treat uh, psychotic symptoms. But one of the medications, uh, an older medicine, Haloperidol is a medication that back in the 60s, um, when they were uh, very strongly associating black people with aggression and psychosis and, and schizophrenia, um, there were ads that you started to see um, pop up in um, psychiatric journals, which showed uh, like a threatening, aggressive black man. Um, and and the, the headline on that ad, the tagline on that ad said, aggressive Belligerent cooperation begins with Haldal, um, and so what you've seen over time is that the the that particular medication somehow became associated in the minds of psychiatrists with that direct marketing. With oh, this is the medication you use when some when a black person presents with schizophrenia and is aggressive, and so that marketing was very effective because. Um last year, one of my patients um, had to go into the hospital um, and I have I have him on uh, an antipsychotic medication and he was doing reasonably well, but then he had a, a decline in his functioning um, and he went into the hospital and um, he was hospitalized in a psychiatric facility. And the first thing that the inpatient psychiatrist did was remove him from his medicine and start him on Haldol. And, and I thought to myself, why, why would that be the choice, the first choice, you know? And I, I, I certainly don't want to imply um, that, that this, this inpatient psychiatrist was racist, um, but, I, but I also think there was a clear connection there because there is this connection in this drug that this drug works in this particular population. It would be fine if that was a one-off thing, but a year later, Uh, Another patient of mine who is a black woman also went into the hospital because she had a, a decline in her functioning and she was taken off of her medication and put on Haldol. Now, that being said, I have several white patients that when they go into the hospital, they are not put on Haldol. So, so even today we see these inequities kind of, uh, and, 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 you know, it's complicated because it's not like Haldol is a terrible medication, um, but it has side effects and it has, and there are things to be considered and it's not first line anymore, really all the time for like ongoing outpatient management of schizophrenia. And yet the only times that I've seen inpatient doctors prescribe that medication, um, to my patients, as when they are um, deemed to be aggressive or threatening, or are, or when they're black.
0: Wow, even today. I, even I guess today, it's, like it's not surprising, and yet it's still shocking.
2: Yeah, even even when it's not surprising, it's still shocking. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's a really good distinction. on like these are heinous things to happen to individuals but when you're treating individuals you're not just looking at an individual you've got a whole family and a whole community how how do these um how do these beliefs then spiral out wider into communities
2: i, I think that i think that we part of what happens is as so, we we are not uh, we are we human beings are not islands, and so we do not operate um, independently. We operate within our family units. We operate within um, our communities, um, and I think that when one person has a negative interaction with the mental health um, system, that scars families and communities, um, and and. And again, um, so so we know that, and, and I know from personal experience. You know, if you experience discrimination, if you experience mistreatment when you go for uh, services or care somewhere. Um, I have never returned to a restaurant that I ate at where I felt I was discriminated against. I've never once been like, okay, I'll go back there because it was probably a one time. I always think I have choices. I have options and I don't need to go to that restaurant again. Um, And so for mental health care, it's a little bit different. Um, People go and they're mistreated and they may be discriminated against in healthcare settings. um, And they then have very limited options about like, how how do they reinterface with that um, with that setting? And so the damage that can be done, the damage that's done to one person, um, then ripples through that family. And so I spend a lot of time interacting clinically with family members who have been traumatized um, by watching their loved ones be harmed um, in seeking care, or be made to feel less than, or be or be discriminated against in their Pursuit of mental health care at maybe some of the worst times in that family's life when when someone is in crisis and they need help and they're made to feel less than and they're made to feel um, not important and and not valuable um, and so that then is causes a ripple effect and then the whole family um, and the whole community tends to kind of turn away from seeking those services and so that's when you end up with this. Um, this narrative that certain populations, certain racial and ethnic groups, Black and Latinx populations, for example, Indigenous populations, that they um, have so much stigma that they don't want to interact with the mental health system. And I'm not saying that stigma doesn't exist, and I'm certainly not saying, um, no, there is no stigma, but I actually don't think that the driving factor in minoritized populations or populations that have traditionally been oppressed, I don't think it's actually stigma. I think it's a very reasonable response to a system that has been harming individuals and a desire not to... Willingly interface with a system that ha- that treats you like you're not worthy, or is more likely to put you in seclusion and restraints when you go for crisis help. You know, I think that it's a very reasonable thing not to want to interact with that system. So it's not a, a stigma problem as much as it's a, a general reasonable response to a trauma being elicited on you. And so then the 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 it's really important because the intervention is very different. So many times people say, oh, there's stigma in these particular populations. So we have to educate people on how important it is for them to seek mental health services and how important. And that is not where the emphasis needs to be. The emphasis needs to be on us improving the mental health system and to be providing Um, culturally culturally humble services and structurally competent and structurally humble services that values and appreciates people and makes them feel um, important and and cared for. Um, And if we fix the system to be more trustworthy Then people will engage with the system more. So it's not about educating. um, It's not about educating certain populations and saying, "Oh, you know, come come to our healthcare system." It's it's the onus is on the providers and the people in the healthcare system to make it a a better place for people to interact.
0: And you've you've done some work trying, like talking about specific ways that could happen. What are specific ways? Like what? How can we make the mental health care treatment system actually responsive to people in a more inclusive, not my, I hate the word inclusive. Um, I, mean, it, I like the word inclusive. It's, I think I feel like I've encountered so oftentimes people are like, oh, let's make it inclusive, but they don't really.
2: There's no action following the the, yeah. the state of inclusivity. Yeah, I hear you.
0: So that's, I guess that's what I mean. Like, how do we make it inclusive? Like actually inclusive yeah. and mean it.
2: So I, I feel I, I think there's many ways. And I um, but I but I think that th- the lack of inclusivity and real action behind that inclusivity has to do mostly with power mm-hmm. um, and power dynamics and who has power and who doesn't. And so if we start to kind of like tease that apart, we see systems that are designed um to. Make it clear when people interface with those systems that the people who have power are powerful um, and that the people who don't are made to feel less than. And so then the work becomes unraveling that hierarchy that we have created within our mental health systems. And that can happen on multiple levels. But I think the quickest way, the quickest way to get there is to have the people working in that system be the very people. <clears throat> be the very people who are actively um, from those communities and members of those communities. That's when workforce diversity becomes most important, because um, because that is not the traditional ways that mental health clinics are designed. The mental health clinics do not traditionally reflect the demographics of the population that they're serving, and so it it really does. So it's not just a matter of um, of of creating a, a more diverse workforce, it's truly having the people that work in that particular mental health setting be from the very community that they're serving and look and be those members of that community. And this is one of the reasons why I am so kind of supportive of the idea of peer specialists because it is uh, it is that is the very function of, of a peer specialist, to be a person from the community who has lived experience, who knows exactly what it feels like to go through this situation and to be able to provide that care and support. And that is the, the fastest way that we will make these settings. Um, we, we will redesign these settings so that people can come in and feel valued and feel important because they are the setting, they are the people that are in that setting. And so that's the work that we have to do. Um, and that involves across all levels, um, aggressively diversifying the workforce. Um, and we talk about workforce shortages and all of that, but I think we need more psychiatrists of color. We need more psychiatrists from oppressed and marginalized backgrounds. We need more. so. so uh, sociologists and social workers and psychologists and peer specialists from, from all sorts of backgrounds. Um, and that is the way that we, um, change, change the system and, and truly build an inclusive, um, mental health system.
0: I'd like to delve a little bit more into, um, you kind of touched on people's lived experience and bringing that in and, and social determinants of health. Um, I'd love to kind of talk more about what can be done, or, or what you're advocating people within the mental health field to do, to really account for all of these other factors that influence our mental health, as opposed to just seeing a, a therapist or a psychiatrist.
2: I think one of the best ways that people can start to take action is by increasing awareness, um, and and so I think that the mental health field, as it's kind of currently structured, spends a lot of time thinking about the individual patient that sits in front of, comes to the office and sits down in front of them, um, and does an assessment that, again, doesn't have all of the context in place. And and particularly the context that I think most providers miss when they do an evaluation on on a client or a person with a mental health problem is that they're missing the structural Components. They're missing that understanding of how those social determinants are interacting directly with that individual. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not understanding how um, access to healthy foods or how poverty or how adverse childhood experiences or how homelessness or, or housing instability. Um, they're not always understanding uh, or how discrimination and racism and sexism how they're not always understanding how those things show up in people's lives. And they're not searching for it. They're not asking questions about that. So they're not asking people about their identities. They're not trying to understand like who this person is and how the external world um, has has interacted with that person and who they are and who their identity is. Um, And I think that uh, if if we as providers don't do that work, we're, we're dropping the ball on, on taking care of whole people and, and moving them towards health and wellness. So, so the, the key, um, and the first step is recognizing that when somebody comes and sits in front of you, um, for an evaluation or for help and, uh, in managing their mental health, that they're not just some diagnosis or they're not just some condition, but they are like a whole person who brings multiple identities and multiple um, beliefs and, and, and multiple cultural, um, cultural identities to, to who they are. And that, and that the job of the provider is to understand better, that person's story and how they interact with the world and how the world interacts with that person. So some people talk about this in the concept of structural competence. And this is, again, um, Jonathan Metzl and Helena Hansen. Mm -hmm. This is work by Jonathan Metzl and Helena Hansen um, to think about how we talk about cultural competence. We, we, We talk about how it's important to understand that there are lots of different cultures and understand the group's Um, that different cultures have different values, but part of what structural competence is saying is we have to better understand how all of those social determinants show up in people's lives, and we have to be better at identifying those social determinants and and asking people about those social determinants and thinking about that context.
0: So to put this into terms that aren't using like structural competency or social determinants, like basically helping providers, but potentially also helping individuals understand like all of the different factors that are happening around them and how that influences them from the stress of not having enough food to the stress of being discriminated against, to the stress of having to navigate complicated systems that weren't built for you to navigate.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Making sure that I could explain this the way it's supposed to be explained.
2: It's it's you explain it beautifully. And I, I think um, that that that's the key, is is that's not the model by which most psychiatrists are trained. Psychiatrists are trained to say, what are your symptoms? Um, you know, how much have you, you know, what's your appetite been like? So like ask about appetite because appetite is a symptom of depression and, and poor appetite is a symptom of depression. Um, so ask if your appetite has changed, but not ask, how, how much, how easily can you access food? How easily can you access healthy foods? Um, do you have food insecurity? And, and so there's like a number of the symptoms. So uh, lack of sleep is um, another symptom of depression. And, and so we ask those questions, how's your sleep, but we don't ask. Um, is there like noise in your neighborhood that prevents you from sleeping? Is there, um, you know, are you witnessing violence? Are you, are you experiencing things that are interfering with your sleep that aren't just I have this symptom of, of insomnia? So it's really about it's it's about going deeper and understanding how those environmental factors really do um, come into play when. And, and we are social beings that interact with our environment. It, it seems pretty obvious, right? Like we should be assessing how people interact with their environments and what's in those environments. Um, and that is just as critical as just understanding and ticking off the symptoms of certain disorders and conditions.
0: This is going to sound like, like a really basic question, but I would love it if you could talk about, even just really quickly, like how discrimination directly affects mental health. Um, just so that yeah. people like grasp that
2: concept. Yeah, that's not a basic question at all. Um, uh, it's it's a great it's a great question. When um, when I was working on um, the book, the book I edited, the social determinants of mental health, we were. Um, trying to gather all those determinants and look at their impact on mental health outcomes. And there was this really fascinating pattern that we were uh, noticing when we were writing that book because we looked at things like discrimination, we looked at housing, we looked at food, we looked at adverse childhood experiences. And there wasn't a lot of data out there at the time. And one of the things we noticed is that there was um, a lot of data that showed um, for almost all of those social determinants, there was a lot of data that showed Uh, that people um, have significant physical health problems associated with things like average childhood experiences and housing instability and food insecurity. Um, And there was less data to support that there were mental health impacts. We found them, but they, they were harder to find. And it was like that for all of the social determinants except discrimination. So for discrimination, There was not a lot of evidence to show that discrimination directly led to poor physical health, but there was an abundance of information and lots of data that showed that discrimination leads to poor mental health outcomes. And specifically certain diagnoses are directly correlated with being perceived as being discriminated against. So you actually don't even have to have been actively discriminated against. You just as an individual have to feel as if you were discriminated against. And that would lead to an increased risk of a number of mental health conditions, including major depressive disorder, alcohol use disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, more days of having psychological distress. Um, All of those illnesses um, and all of those mental health conditions are tied directly to the experience of perceiving that you are discriminated against. And so there's a direct line there. And again, it's really powerful because um, that data is, is really robust data that we have on this so, absolutely, discrimination leads to poor mental health and leads to poor mental health outcomes, and we have really strong data that that scientists have been working on for for decades now that that says that pretty definitively.
0: And so, the solution for that
2: is <laughs> less discrimination. discrimination. Less yes. discrimination, I think, is is the <laughs> How do we eliminate discrimination? Um, and, and so, you know, that, that leads a lot of people to say, okay, that's where we have to do implicit bias training. And I do think implicit bias training is one piece, but but I also, again, I'm back to at least, you know, we can't solve discrimination in the world, you know, like that's too big of a, a, a thing to address. But we can at least minimize the discrimination that people experience accessing healthcare. Um, and there is, you know, um, David Williams is a researcher on, on racism and discrimination and health. And he created an everyday discrimination scale. And this is like a scale that asks people how they've been discriminated against in, in, in their lives. And this is where a lot of that data comes from that shows that if you score higher on that everyday discrimination scale, you have a greater likelihood of developing um, a number of mental health conditions. And and one of the things that uh, happened is that that everyday discrimination scale was adapted for healthcare settings. And so the same questions are now asked, has a nurse or doctor ever made you feel um, that you were less than or talked to you like you were... Um, not important or, you know, made you feel like you were stupid. Like those questions um, that were part of the regular scale have now been adapted for the healthcare setting. So we can't fix all of the ills of society, but we could at least eliminate the discrimination that people experience when they go to seek healthcare and the discrimination that they experience when they get mental health care services. And, and again, one of the quickest ways we can do that is by diversifying the workforce by making sure that there are more people from those same identities providing care, because it's less likely that somebody is going to be discriminated against by someone from the same group or category that that they are in.
0: Anything else you'd like to add before you run to your next meeting?
2: No, I just thank you so much for the time. It's been great to talk to you.
0: Likewise, thank you so much for your time. That was Dr. Ruth Shim talking about racism and mental health. As Dr. Shim said, there are ways to make the mental health system more equitable. Part of that starts with diversifying the workforce and valuing the skills and life experiences that peer navigators bring to the table. Providers also need to consider all of the different aspects of life that influence our mental health like the resources we have access to and the environment we live in. During the next episode of Mental Health Mosaics, we'll delve more deeply into another issue that influences our mental health, our sense of identity. You can find more resources related to all of these issues, as well as poetry and art, on our website, mentalhealthmosaics.org. If you enjoyed today's episode, help others find it by rating the podcast on any and all podcast platforms. Today's episode was created with input from Susie Buchanan and audio editing by Dave Waldron. Our theme music is by Aria Phillips. I'm the show's host and producer. We receive funding from the Alaska Center for Excellence in Journalism, the Alaska Mental Health Trust Authority, and the Alaska State Council for the Arts. Thanks very much for listening.